welcome to episode 5 of Air Mick Talks, your fortnightly podcast brought to you by the UK's Risk and Insurance Management Association. If you are not already, then please do make sure you are subscribed to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you get your podcasts from. This week, I'll be discussing the shock that the UK and global economy has taken since the onset of the coronavirus pandemic with Kevin Bosher, Chief Investment Officer at Ravenscroft. Kevin and I also discuss the government and central bank interventions and how the economic recovery is likely to pan out. But first, I am joined by John Ludlow, CEO of Airmic, to provide us an update on goings-on at the association, and he started by outlining the first priorities. First thing we had to think about and do think about every morning actually is the team and how the Airmic team are, are doing working from home, how they're, fam- how they're dealing with the family issues and how they're focusing on the job in hand. So that's always a first part of our sort of senior management call every morning. You mentioned there those, those senior management calls. I know that they're an every morning occurrence. How has Airmic had to adapt to, to the lockdown and this kind of new normal that we find ourselves in? Well, the first thing was really coming to grips with the fact that we were all going to have to work from home and what we needed to do to prepare for that. And we got all of that done before the lockdown actually arrived. So we were in good shape for that. We then started working from home and we realised that, you know, there's lots of issues when you work from home. Family, other family members, family duties, kids, cats, all sorts of things. That all needed to be dealt with. And then we needed to, uh, well, in the immediate thing was the fast track for you know which had to go uh, uh, digital it was blended actually that was the sort of almost a day or two before the lockdown and we did both digital and physical and we realized what a great success that was stripping down the program so that it could be uh, sort of filmed and and sent out on the internet and we got we doubled the number of people who would who would have attended the event i was there and i thought it really worked and i thought right well this is the answer you know what you're going to see in the lockdown is accelerated change and whilst we were talking about the digital revolution last year this is where the rubber hits the road and Ermic needed to get on and digitize so we needed to think about the uh, conference and we decided that that wasn't going to happen so uh, we've unraveled the conference or we're in the process of unraveling the commercial side of the conference which is a big job but basically We've got on and digitized the daily, weekly, monthly activities of Airmic, and that's been a tremendous success as well. So the Airmic Academy, Fast Track Program, all of these things have got much higher attendance um, rates at the moment, and we're just getting better and better at doing uh, webinars instead of workshops. And that's, that's really satisfying to see how the whole team, actually, and all our partners have got stuck into that. And also the members, they realise that actually you only need to invest an hour or so and you get what you used to have to invest half a day for. Absolutely, of course, because with, our, with the academies, and we, and we do love our academies and they are very popular, but of course, if they are a two-hour academy plus some lunch and plus some travel into the city, as you say, that's going to be half a day. But of course, in the current circumstances, an academy delivered over a one-hour webinar is pretty much just a, just a one-hour for members to 
immerse themselves in and I know the atten- attendance numbers as you reference have been very very good so w- what has been the, the response broadly then from our AMIT members and from our from our partners to our to our change in approach it seems like plenty of collaboration has been has been continuing it's been fabulous actually uh, everybody's just got stuck in and uh, I think the members are really enjoying it the feedback on the uh, webinars has been quite exceptional I think also it's uh, the once they've got their heads around it they've also stepped up and I think their planning and preparation for these things is better and the delivery is better uh, so I think everybody's winning actually and I think uh, they're getting to they're getting to touch more people and everybody's adjusted to the new normal and very happy obviously the technical program is pretty much untouched you know that can rattle along Ho Young our new uh, research manager is very happy uh, he's he's doing his research projects and writing his papers and that's that's really going very well indeed i think uh, we've also got the special interest groups in focus now how we can have more special interest groups whereby we focus on more industries and different parts of the uk and we can start to use that to bring in people who maybe aren't AMIC members as well and get them to experience the uh, what we offer and hopefully expand the membership, although I recognise it's difficult times for everybody. So uh, we'll just have to see how we go, but uh, that's, the, that's the ambition. Then there's the uh, professional development programmes like Business Excellence and CAS. Well, we're going to delay those until we're allowed small meetings, and then those programmes will get underway, as will the uh, new AR, ARM, the Associate and Risk Manager programme where we were going to do classes for that. And all of those things will hopefully come back as soon as the uh, restrictions are lifted. And then, of course, we also have to run all of our committees and, uh, and the board and things like that. And those have all been successfully run virtually. So AMIC is, is a virtual company now, and it's, it's working. We're planning for the future, though, as well. So we've got to look forwards. And, you know, you do look at the... Uh, all that thought leadership that went into the conference could we run a digital event and we've kind of looking at september and thinking gosh it would be nice to run something in september maybe a two or three day event and we're looking at platforms that can help us do that and if we can then we will i think that would be tremendous and then looking further ahead again you've got the enterprise risk management forum we need to think about whether we could do something for that if we're not allowed to have a couple of hundred people in the room and then uh, the AMIC dinner, of course, in December. But really, I think, I think the big lesson here is that uh, we all know, don't we, that in times of war or crisis, it's a great opportunity to shift the culture. And so yeah. we seem to have seen that happen. Uh, but also, it's a great time for accelerating change. And I think uh, AMIC has been think- talking about digitizing. It's, it's back a house last year. We did that digitizing front of house if you like this year the, the member experience and that's 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 just been accelerated and I think uh, what we need to do over the next few months is think about what that's going to look like in in 2021-2022 as we plan for the business to uh, adapt and morph and become what it could be uh, in two or three years time so certainly that's where I'm thinking at the moment what do we want to look like in two or three years time what do our conferences look like? What do our events look like? And the role of technology and all of that. And at the moment, I'm feeling very optimistic. I can see lots of opportunity for us to make AMIC a, a more compelling value 
to our members, but also to our partners and sponsors as well. But certainly there's a tough 12, 18 months to get through because the finances are going to be under the cosh, that's for sure. But once we're through this, then there's a whole new vision to go for. And John, of course, we've had uh, quite a few changes to the Airmit team over the last two or three months or since the turn of the year, in fact, as well. So just talk us through some of those changes. The idea was to build a new middle team, really, to take Airmic forward to the next age. So we brought in Ho Young and he settled in really, really well as our research manager. And then more recently, Adam Ireland has come in to take over the learning and development uh, role and to really professionalize uh, all those offerings that we have and to take them to the next level. And just recently, we've also brought in Alex Frost to take the role that George, Georgina had. And Alex has, has arrived and uh, obviously getting his feet under the virtual table. I take my hat off to these three, actually, because uh, they've arrived pretty much just as we all went into lockdown. Uh, and have all gone virtual so they've all settled in brilliantly and the team's really really strong now and ready for you know whatever the future brings obviously as well as those three we've got yourself Richard and uh, Patrick and Jess all working in in a contractual roles on specifics as well so we've Emic's got uh, a very strong uh, central team now supplemented uh, with the contract roles uh, that you guys uh, adopt. And in addition, then, obviously, they're, they're working closely with uh, people that have been with us for a long time, like Susie and Matt and Leslie and Julia. And uh, I think it's just a phenomenal team. Thank you, John. And now it's time for our set piece interview with Kevin Bosher, Chief Investment Officer at Ravenscroft. Kevin began by explaining the immediate short term impact of the pandemic on the UK and global economies. The impact has been very significant in that we are, the global economy is now in quite a, a deep recession. The, the economy was, the global economy was already struggling before COVID 19. Um, due to slowing growth, increasing debt levels, problems between China and the US, slowing global trade and so on. But clearly COVID-19 has basically you know, been the, the, the main shock to the system in the past few months. And it's unprecedented in the sense that it's the first time in history that a, glo- a health pandemic has voluntarily forced the closure of a large part of the global economy. And obviously, that's that's done significant damage. For example, the IMF at the start of the year were forecasting global growth to grow by 3%. They're now forecasting minus 3%. They're forecasting UK economy to shrink by about 11 or 12% this year, but then to recover significantly next year. So there's no question um, it's caused a, a very deep, sharp and quick recession, probably the, the, the quickest one in, in history. And this is very much a demand shock where consumption, investment, global trade have effectively fallen off, fallen off a cliff. But because it's, it's a health shock whereby large chunks of the economy have been shot down, um, that means it's very difficult to have any clarity or certainty about when things are going to recover and how quickly they're going to recover, because that all really depends on when the lockdowns can be exited, how long that takes, 
whether there's any second round effects of the virus increasing again or whether vaccines and treatments will be found in that time frame. And, and every country seems to be approaching this in, in a slightly different way. So you've got delays, you know, um, of different countries opening their economies, opening borders and so on. So a lot of uncertainty, a lack of transparency. Um, so very difficult to, to know where we go from here. But the short term impact has been probably the, the most severe and the quickest recession pretty much, if not in history, certainly since uh, the end of the Second World War. How do we expect then to see that impact to manifest itself in the in the medium to long term? So I think it, it really does depend on two things. It depends on how economies can exit from the lockdown, what time frame, how quickly, when will economic activity get back to, to normal? Will, will it ever get back to where we were? Or will some sectors be permanently damaged? So there's the demand shock side of things. Uh, and then there's also the supply side implications longer term, whereby many companies and sectors may may well not return to their former levels, which means that, you know, the, the global productive capacity of, of goods and services may be diminished going forward, even if demand recovers. So that's all medium to long term factors, which at this point we don't really know. However, what we do know is that there has been a huge policy response by um, global central banks and governments. Central banks have significantly printed money and embarked on further quantitative easing, which has massively increased the size of their balance sheets. For example, the US Fed alone has pumped uh, well about $3 trillion into, into the system, which is equivalent roughly to what it put into the system between the whole of 2008-2014 after the great financial crisis. So huge response from central banks, including the ECB, the Bank of England, Bank of Japan and other Asian central banks. At the same time, governments have embarked on significant fiscal expansion, anywhere between 10 to 25% of GDP, again, pretty much unheard of. And I think this time around, unlike 2008-9, where many people were against bailing out the banks, here we have no legal, political or moral hazard constraints on policymakers acting very aggressively and very quickly uh, in order to, to prop up the economy and, and financial markets. And the reason the policymakers have acted so quickly and so aggressively is they need they realise they need to do a number of things. They certainly needed to um, support financial markets and make sure that they continue to function as, as normally. Um, they needed to provide liquidity to the global economy and to, to financial markets. They obviously need to try and make sure that, that they the public sector steps in and meets the the, the dramatic fall in uh, private sector demand. They're trying to ensure as many businesses stay solvent as possible, um, as many people can earn income and that unemployment, even if it does spike up in the short term, which of course it will, can quickly come come back down to more sensible levels. And also really what they're trying to do is is make sure that whatever falls we see in, the, in global economic activity that gap is plugged and, and economic activity picks up to levels we were pre-COVID-19 as quickly as possible. What it can't do is dictate the time frame that it takes to exit lockdown and really deal with the health impact of the virus. But it can make sure that policy action will make sure that when economies can reopen, that there will be plenty of liquidity in the system and plenty of policy help 
in order to get businesses back up and running, in order to get individuals back out to work uh, and basically to try and get economic activity up and running. So although we've seen a very severe shock on the way down with some pretty dramatic numbers, the policy response has, has been huge, which should ensure that the economic recovery, when it comes, will be very powerful, as indeed will you know the financial market re- recovery as well. There's some longer term implications from all of this. Basically, you know, very aggressive fiscal action, very low interest rates, close to zero, which and lots of money printing and quantitative easing. It's likely to stay in place for several years to come, a bit like after 2008. And, And that has implications. It means that globally there'll be a lot more debt in the system. Uh, and almost certainly it will lead to higher inflation somewhere down the road, particularly when you account for the fact that many companies and industries are probably going to have to make changes to their, their global supply chains. So it, it will mean that after a very long cycle, pretty much since the early 80s of, of falling interest rates, falling inflation, um, that cycle will eventually turn around. But that that's something to worry about another day. It's certainly not something to worry about today. This shock is a deflationary shock in the short term. Inflation is going to head lower short term. But, but the impact of that policy, together with major supply side changes for many companies, will eventually probably lead to a, a new inflation cycle further down the road. A lot of what you touched upon there, Kevin, is regarding obviously the huge state intervention we've seen, not just in the UK, but across the world. From my, from my standpoint, it looks a lot like a lot of our economies are just being, the governments are just trying to put them on pause, aren't they? They're trying to kind of put them on pause so they can be kind of rebooted again when the, when the time is right. Is there, has there ever been a, another moment in kind of economic history similar to that, uh, need, needing that type of action where the kind of large parts of the economy has just been paused? I think the closest comparison is probably 9-11 in the early part of, of, the, of the century, where basically many people stopped traveling, stopped going out because of fears of, of terrorist attacks. Um, so that was comparable, but nowhere near as severe and abrupt um, and, and didn't cover such a large part of the global economy as, as we're seeing this time around. So that is the closest comparison. 2008 was obviously very different because that was a financial crisis. But I think what we've seen in recent times is we have seen policymakers react even quicker and stronger every time we've seen a crisis. So this is this is the you know the, the most the quickest and the most severe recession probably in in history, but it led to the quickest response, policy response we've seen. It was the, it was the quickest bear market for equities in history. Not yet the most severe, but the quickest. But again, I think policymakers learn each time from previous crises. And although each crisis is different, and this one certainly is, I think that they learn and they, they, they're ready to act to, in order to prop up a system much more quickly. And as I said, I think very importantly this time around, there's absolutely nothing stopping them doing as much as they need to to, to prop up a system. Uh, because it's, this is more akin to a warlike situation or a natural disaster where there are no legal, um, political or moral hazard constraints. Yeah, absolutely. So that's been really helpful, Kevin, to kind of set that context for us of what we're facing. And just, just lastly, I wanted to ask you what steps organisations should be looking at, re kind of their own investment strategies in this new normal, because there's some pretty volatile waters to be, to be navigating in the next, in the coming months. Yeah, no, absolutely. So markets have, of course, been volatile. Not only did equities fall, you know, very precipitously and, and aggressively between twenty and thirty percent over over February and March, 
sovereign bond yields fell to record low levels. Um, spreads on corporate bonds uh, increased significantly. That's the excess premium investors demand over sovereigns. We saw volatility increase across all asset classes. We even saw some strains in overnight money market funding rates. And of course, we saw big collapse in commodities and, and the energy price. So, I mean, it was a big shock for markets. Markets really had to try and come to terms with the shock and, and the extent of, of the recession and, and both the demand shock, the, the size of the demand shock and the longer term supply side consideration. So it was a big shock for markets. Um, it's good to see that markets have stabilised in the last three, four weeks. And I think that's largely due to this massive policy response. Um, the Fed in particular have been a big help here because they, by pumping all that liquidity into the system, they really have ensured that markets continue functioning. They have done a, a lot of swaps with overseas central banks. There appear to be problems with dollar um, shortages outside of the US. Of course, everyone trades in dollars or borrowed in dollars and needs dollars for that purpose. And there was a, a shortage of dollars outside of the US, which was causing the dollar to spike higher and problems in markets. They've, they've addressed that. The Fed has addressed that by entering into swap agreements with foreign central banks. Um, and also in particular, what they've also done for the first time in their history is they're now buying high yield US bonds as well as investment grade as part of their quantitative easing programs. And spreads had widened significantly. And there was a lot of concern in the high yield market in the US um, because of all the leverage that companies have taken on in uh, the last eight to 10 years. There was a real concern that, that default rates would significantly rise and bring about a lot of forced selling in credit markets. So by the Fed stepping in, buying high yield, they've helped calm credit markets, which has also you know, had a very positive impact, knock-on impact on, on equity markets. And I, I think we'll see other central banks do a similar thing. The ECB are already talking about accepting junk bonds as part of their collateral for loans. By the time this is finished, the Bank of Japan have been buying Japanese equity and bond ETFs for the past eight years. An amazing fact, the Bank of Japan now own in excess of 80% of the Japanese ETF market for bonds and equities. I think as we go out of this, I think we're going to see central banks increasingly be buyers of, of corporate bonds and indeed maybe equities as well um, in due course. So in terms of from an investment strategy perspective, having survived that, you know, in, in obviously in different ways, um, it's good that markets have stabilised, but I think patience is required there are undoubtedly some opportunities that are coming out of this, which I'll talk about in a moment. But because of the uncertainty about how quickly lockdowns will be exited and how quickly economies will open up and normal activity resume, if at all, plus there's a bit of doubt still about how how effective this policy action will be and whether more will be required. So given all of that, I think that hopefully the policy action and the fact that the the path of the virus does seem to be you know, under control in, in most parts of the world. And there's a lot of work and money being put into trying to find vaccines and treatments. So given all of that, hopefully we've seen the worst in markets. But equally, there's a lot of risk still in there, partly because the exit plat locked from lockdowns may not go according to plan. There are some secondary risks coming out of this um, in the euro area, for example, where this is probably make or break for the euro project. They um, We really do need fiscal transfers to, to help help Italy here. And if that's not forthcoming, we may have another problem in, in the Eurozone. And so I, I think there are plenty of reasons to be cautious as investors. 
best to keep some cash at the moment. Very important to, of course, make the most of that. Cash is a very good defensive tool uh, at times such as this. But equally, it is. I think we've got to look forward to the recovery, recognise the policy response, have faith that a bit like SARS and swine flu, the, the, the world will eventually um, find a way through this particular pandemic. And therefore, from an opportunity perspective, um, we can see a lot of opportunities building up, which we're going to look to take advantage of o- over the, the next few weeks and months. In particular, we like healthcare stocks, uh, governments, individuals were already spending increasing amounts of money in healthcare. Well, this is only going to exaggerate that trend. Obviously, as the world gets older and, and lives longer, um, that was necessitating increased spending in this area. But but now governments are going to have to fund their healthcare um, sectors in a lot more than they've done historically. Technology, a big winner. Companies, governments were already investing in technology to boost productivity uh, and long-term growth as well as meet environmental challenges. Um, we're all now learning to work, communicate differently and to, you know, how we spend our leisure time all through the use of technology. So got no doubt technology would be a big winner coming out of this. I think defensive consumer staple and discretionary stocks have held up incredibly well. Again, even in adverse economic situations, everyone needs to go out and buy your basics and spend on your basics. So that will continue to to be the case. And there are some global leaders in that space. And I think another big winner is probably um, ultimately, you know, emerging markets. Our view is, is that emerging markets have fallen very hard, but Asia in particular will almost certainly come out of this stronger They've got the tools in which to stimulate their, their economies, both monetary and fiscal. They are already growing at a much superior rate to developed economies because of better demographics and better productivity. China is going to come out of this stronger. We sense that we're in the late stages of, of dollar strength um, and the dollar bull market for this cycle, given all the money printing and fiscal stimulus that the US are embarking on. We see the dollar weakening going forward, and that's normally very good for Asia and, and emerging markets. And and, weaker, and lower energy prices are also very good for Asia. So we think Asia uh, and, and, and emerging market and Asia consumers in particular are going to come out of this very well. And there's lots of companies that obviously will benefit from that. And then finally, if um, if inflation does pick up over the long run, then I think gold will do very well, not just because of inflation, but because gold tends to do well when people lose faith in fiat currencies and paper currencies, which is almost certainly going to be the case, um, as we see a lot more of it printed. And so I think those are the, the, the key areas that we're looking to add to for our clients over the coming weeks and months. But as I say, we're not in a we're in no hurry because um, there's still a lot of uncertainty around which will likely keep volatility elevated for a while. Well, thank you to John and Kevin for joining us on this latest episode of Airmic Talks. Please do continue to stay up to date with all the latest developments at Airmic through the website where we have a regularly updated coronavirus resource page. Stay safe and healthy and see you next time.